tremendously. Pray with me. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. God, thank you for the power of your word, that it's able to change us. God, we pray in this moment that your Holy Spirit would be present in this room. I mean, we, we just want to be changed by you. We want the Spirit to have his way with us today, to leave us as if we encountered the living God. That's what we want. And so we hold nothing back from you, God. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. One of my favorite pastors is a pastor out in New York City named Tim Keller. <clears throat> I've learned a lot from Tim Keller over the years from his writings and his sermons. And I remember a story he told one time. I think it's in the, the podcast that accompanies the uh, marriage book that he wrote. And he was telling a story about early on after he planted his church in New York City. He, uh, you know, a, a church plant in a busy city like New York or Chicago, pastors are busy. You don't have a big staff. It's only a couple of you, and you're trying to get everything done and meet all the needs of the church, but at the same time, grow this church and have it be a part of the community. And uh, as he was telling the story, he says, you know, I was working more hours than I had ever worked in my life. And my wife kept trying to tell me, honey, this isn't working. <laughs> You're working too many hours. Honey, I need you. And he says, I was, I was hearing the words, but I wasn't listening. Men, listen to that. <laughs> I was hearing the words, but I wasn't listening. Classic example of problems in marriage. Husbands hearing, but not listening. And the, then what happens, the husband, he, he keeps working. He doesn't actually hear it, right? He just keeps working and working and working. One day he comes home and his wife is sitting in the kitchen and he opens the door. He sees his wife in the back and he's got a, she has a box of their best china on her lap. And when he opens the door, she takes a plate and she throws it on the ground. And he goes, what's going on? She takes another one and throws it down. And he begins to get nervous and he runs into the kitchen and then the wife takes two plates <laughs> throws him down on the ground, shatters him. He says, what's going on? She says, do I have your attention yet? Wife trying to get a, the attention of her husband. Has to go to drastic measures because the husband's so busy with everything else. Good things at that. You know, we are distracted people. We're a very distracted people. And sometimes it's hard for the people that are closest in our life to actually get our attention and tell us what they're trying to tell us and say it in a way that we can hear them, that we actually process it and don't just give lip service to it, but actually change as a result. And sometimes the person in our life that is nearest to us as a Christian, that's our God, that's our Savior, that's Jesus, sometimes there's not even space in our lives for Him to speak to us. Let me ask you this morning, does God have your attention is your life so cluttered, so busy, so full, so many things, even church things that you're doing that you haven't heard the voice of God? Are you so busy with everything else that you can't take a moment to be undistracted for your Savior to speak to you? Does God have your attention? Today, we come across this great story in our family's heritage. And when I say our family, what I mean by that is the people of God. The people of God, that's your family. When you read the Old Testament, if you're a not-Jewish person, which I'm guessing is most people in this room, you've been grafted into God's family. And every story from the Old Testament, that's your family's story. It's who you are. 
It's like when we tell the stories of our grandfathers and our great-grandfathers and their exploits and their adventures, and we, we cherish them. That's what we do when we read this. It's our family story. And in this story, we get to hear how God got the attention of one man and the crisis that ensued in his life. So let's jump into chapter 3, verse 1. Exodus chapter 3. We're in the book of Exodus, page 46, if you have your house Bibles. Second book of the Bible, if you're using your app. Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness. And he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Now as we meet Moses, we find him shepherding his father-in-law's sheep in Midian. Now, this is very telling and tells us a lot about the story, but in order for that sentence to make sense, we've got to backtrack to chapters 1 and 2 and get some context. Remember Moses. Moses was born as a Jewish boy, ethnically. He was Jewish, but he was born into a time when the Jews were all held in slavery in Egypt. The Jewish people have had a very rough go at it over the millennia. Right? World War II was not the first time that someone tried to extinguish them. They've been tried to put out many times in the past, and this was one of them. They were in slavery in Egypt. And, and God, and, and Moses, was an infant who was born into a Jewish family, but then raised up as an adopted son in an Egyptian pharaoh's house. Now, this is amazing. I have two adopted daughters. Both of them are African American, and they're growing up in our home. And I talk to many older adopted folks who tell me about the challenges they're going to work through in their identity as they get older and how I can help them as a parent navigate those identity markers. This is very personal for me. When I read of an adopted man named Moses, ethnically Jewish, being raised in an Egyptian household, he's got a lot of identity questions. As a young man, he's, he's coming into his own. He's getting a little power, getting a little brawn, getting a little muscle to him. He walks out one day. He sees an Egyptian striking a Jewish person, and he kills the Egyptian. Now, if there's a man who's got identity issues, it's Moses. He's torn up on the inside. He doesn't know who he is. He murders somebody. Now, here's what we know about Moses growing up in Egypt. He would have had his hand at everything he would have desired. He would have had an Ivy League education of his day, right? He was Pharaoh's adopted son. He would have had the best military training. He would have been as military trained as any general out there. He would have had the best religious training. The most important trait of the day was religion. The prophets were the religious people in those days. And he would have known all the Egyptian gods, would have been familiar with them. And yet, we find that he actually identified more with his Jewish birth than with his Egyptian upbringing into his adopted family. But then his own people turn on him. He kills this Egyptian and he thinks, now my people are going to accept me. And he finds that they don't. He's too Egyptian for them. So he runs. He runs to Midian. Let me put a map up for you. Egypt is just south of the Mediterranean. Egypt hasn't moved. Same Egypt. We're talking about the same place in modern-day Egypt. Same place. You see Ramses, Python, Sukkoth. Those are Egyptian cities. And over on the far right, you see Midian. That's modern-day Saudi Arabia. Modern-day Saudi Arabia. Moses runs as far as he can. Now, in the middle of that, in the middle of the Sinai Peninsula, you see Mount Sinai. That's the traditional location of Mount Sinai. Many actually think it's located, the real, the real location is in Saudi Arabia. 
that that's the actual location. I, and I actually personally hold to that. I think that's exactly where Mount Sinai was in Saudi Arabia. But there you see the traditional uh, location of the account of this story today. Moses is shepherding his father-in-law's sheep. Now, Egyptians would never touch shepherds. It was the dirtiest job for a good Egyptian in that day, particularly royalty, like Moses was. And so here we find Moses, once again, throwing away his Egyptian background and trying to maybe identify a little more with his Jewish background. But he's married into a Midianite family. Now, there's a twist. Jewish by birth, Egyptian by upbringing, Midianite by marriage. No wonder he's wandering around by himself in the desert. For 40 years he wanders out there. Shepherd. He's 80 years old when, when God appears to him in Mount Horeb. Now, he appears in what is called Mount Horeb in this chapter. Mount Horeb would one day be known as Mount Sinai. And the reason the name changed is because the word for bush in Hebrew that is used in this chapter, the burning bush, is the word in Hebrew, saneh. Sounds like Sinai, doesn't it? And so Mount Horeb is the traditional name of the mountain. But over time, the Jewish people, it came to be named the mountain of the bush. Mount Sinai, Mount Saneh, and it took on a new name. And so Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai are the same place. And in verse 2, we read, The angel of the Lord speaks to Moses. Now, in the Old Testament, when you see the angel of the Lord, more often than not, in fact, almost every time, the angel of the Lord, when it's speaking to someone in the Old Testament, is God himself. And when God speaks to someone and takes on some kind of form, physical form, to communicate in this physical world, that's the second person of the Trinity. That's the Word. The Word. The Word is the one that has come down to speak to Moses, and he's speaking out of this bush. This is the pre-incarnate Christ speaking to Moses. Chapter 3, verses 4 to 6 or chapter 3, verses 3 to 6. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned? When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. He said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then God said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you stand is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Now God begins by first calling Moses twice. Moses. Moses. That was a gentle, loving way to compel somebody in those days. It was a lot like when I, not quite this gushy, it was when I say to my wife, Sarah, my love. That's how I oftentimes talk to my wife. Sarah, my love. There's a personal quality to that. There's a, there's a, a gentleness about that calling my wife. It's not quite that gentle, but it's in that line. Moses, Moses, there's this gentleness with which God calls Moses. But notice the very next thing. He says, take off your sandals because you're standing on holy ground. You're standing on holy ground. Moses suddenly finds himself face to face in the presence of the Almighty. And we're told that Moses hid his face. Isn't that an interesting detail? He hid his face in fear of being in the presence of something holy. Now, I have to tell you, I think I have done a poor job as your pastor of telling us about the holiness of God. And today I have a chance to actually teach us about this. I think in modern day Christianity, we love Moses, Moses. We love the personal quality of God. We love the fact that God is gentle and that he draws near and that he calls us compassionately. We love Moses, Moses. 
And we don't know what to do with take off your feet because you're standing on holy ground. And I think that's one of the big problems of the church is that we don't know what to do with that. God is holy. And if we were to ever find ourselves face to face with the living God on his terms, we would die immediately if not for his common grace, if not for the grace that sustains us in the presence of the Almighty. He's too great. He's too different. He's too awesome. Moses rightly cowers in fear before the living God. We are not dealing with a God who is light and fluffy. We are dealing with the God of the universe. There's a great book that was written in the 1800s by an author named Rudolf Otto. And Otto wrote this book called The Idea of the Holy. And what he tries to do in this book is put human language around the concept of holiness. Now, if ever you want a book that will make you bang your head against a wall for a few months as you try to work through it, this is the book for you. It is as academic as they come, and it's kind of old-school English writing. It's very tough to read, but it's worth every sentence. In this book, he coins a term called the mysterium tremendum. It's his way of describing what holiness is. It means the tremendous mystery. It's a Latin phrase, mysterium tremendum. Mysterious. When we understand holiness, we understand that God is not like us. There's something wholly other about him. We don't belong in this place with him. We are distinct from him and separate. And even to glimpse upon him in any way ought to frighten us because he is something wholly different from us. That's God. And he's tremendous. There's an awful tremendous power behind him. If we were to understand the difference between us and God, we just sang this a few weeks ago, I am but a worm. We hate saying that word. You know why? Because we don't understand the holiness of God. If we were to understand our worm-likeness before God, that He is totally bigger than us, we are in no way to be compared with Him. He is awesome in power and holiness. When we stand before that living God, the mysterium tremendum, we fall on our face in that second. That's the basis of understanding our sin. See, this is the reason we don't repent over our sin enough because we don't understand the holiness of God. We don't understand the filth we bring before the holy God that we serve. God's people always fall on their face before a holy God. Rudolf Otto says this about holiness. He said, The truly mysterious object is beyond our apprehension and comprehension. Not only because our knowledge has certain irremovable limits, but because in it we come upon something inherently holy other whose kind and character are incommensurable with our own, and before which we therefore recoil in a wonder that strikes us chill and numb. That's, what has, that's what's happening to Moses right now. He's caught up in this moment of the holiness of God. All through Scripture, people fall on their face when they're caught in the holiness of God. Let me show you a few of them. Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel is given this vision of the throne room of God. He sees awful creatures, these angelic beings with four heads before the throne room. And then he sees the Word sitting on his throne. You know what Ezekiel does in that moment? Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 28. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. I fell on my face. And I heard the voice of one speaking. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah receives almost the exact same vision. He's caught up into the throne room of God. God speaks to him. Listen to this. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. You want to understand the tremendous side of holiness? When God speaks, the door frames shake. How about you're in that room? 
You want to know holiness? When God speaks, it's like an earthquake. Do you know God that way? That's who he is. You know what, Moses, what Isaiah says? He said, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. I'm lost. I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. He's getting a glimpse in that moment. All his sin is bearing in front of his eyes, and he's saying, I don't belong here. I am too full of sin to be in your presence. How about the New Testament? Matthew chapter 17, the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John go up a mountain with Jesus, and Jesus shows them his glorified self. You know what the disciples do? They've been walking with Jesus all this time, but when they see him in his fullness of his holiness, it says, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. We must never lose our reverence of God. A good and holy respect and awe of God must permeate every encounter we have with God. God says the foundation of his throne is justice. God forbid we ever lose the holiness of God and we start treating him as if he's just like a pet to be enjoyed. So many of us, that's our modern day Christianity. Even sometimes the songs we sing, we talk about Moses, Moses, but we forget holiness. Take off your shoes because you're in the presence of the Almighty. That's the foundation. That's the root place for us to begin this relationship with God. But notice, God draws him near. He doesn't leave Moses with his face cowered in the corner. He draws him near and he speaks to him like a friend. Moses' commissioning is in chapter, or chapter 3, verses 7 to 12. Let me read the whole thing to us. It says, Then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. And I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egypts. Notice, who's going to deliver them? It's not Moses. God says, I've come down to deliver them. He does it all. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and the Termites. Just kidding. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you might bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, and this is the right thing to say in this moment, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God said, But I will be with you. Hear those words. I will be with you. And this will be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now I want to show you, in that commissioning of Moses, five actions of God. Five clear actions of God. These form the framework for God's commissioning of Moses. Number one, God has seen and heard their affliction. All these years, 400 years, God's people have been in slavery in Egypt. And God has heard every one of their groanings. He, not one thing they have been through has fallen on deaf ears. Not one cry, not one complaint, not one prayer has fallen on deaf ears. God heard it all. And God's come down to do business. God's come down. He comes down in the form of the burning bush. And what we find is that he's going to be with Moses the entire time. In fact, it's going to be God that will redeem his people out of Egypt. Verse 10, he says, I will send you. Moses, I'm the one that's going to redeem the Israelites out of Egypt. But Moses, hear this. I'm going to use your hands. I'm going to use your feet and I'm going to use your mouth. You're a big part of this story. I'm the one who's going to do it all, but your feet and hands are going to be used by me in the process. 
Verse 10 goes on. He says, I will be with you. God's not sending Moses on his own. That's far too great a task for any human being. No one could ever deliver the Jews out of slavery in Egypt under the most powerful man in the world. But God can. God's going to be with Moses the whole way. And he says, I'll give you signs. Signs. This is what God always does. He gives us these signs. This will be a sign for you, Moses. Once you're out of Egypt and all God's people worship on Mount Sinai together, that's a sign for you. That tells you, I deliver you. I make good on my promise to you, Moses. Now, I want you to notice something about Moses. We've talked so far about the identity issues Moses has, right? Has God said anything about those issues to Moses when he commissions him? Nothing. It's not there. Some of us, I think, we have a mistaken view of God. Some of us, I think, and it's modern-day Christianity. Christianity is trying to tell us this, and it's not true. Are you ready for it? Here's the lie. God is God so that you can have all your problems fixed in your life. That's what he ultimately wants for you. You got a tummy ache? Bring it to God, right? You got an identity crisis? Bring it to God. That's what he's ultimately for. This is his big picture story. It's all he wants to do is fix all your problems and fix your world. Who's the center of that universe? You. We think God's sole thing he's doing in history is fixing our problems. Now, don't get me wrong. At this church, we talk about identity all the time. In fact, Moses is the case study for this stuff. Yes, God's going to fix Moses. But you know how he's going to do it? He's going to do it once he changes Moses' posture and sets Moses on a pathway for the glory of God. God is not primarily interested in fixing your problems. God is primarily interested in the glory of God. And what he wants to do is he wants to set your life on a path for the glory of God. He wants everything about you to be about the glory of God. He wants your mouth. He wants your ears. He wants your eyes, your hands, your feet, your time, your life, your spouse, your family, your breath. He wants it all. And he'll stop at nothing until your entire posture says, it's not about me. It's about the glory of God. Now, where are we going, God? That's what he's doing. So often we think God is a self-help book. He's here just to fix your problems. He's not. Moses gets his problems fixed on the journey of mission, setting his face towards the glory of God. God's not interested just in your self-help. He'll fix you. He'll fix you. But step one is see the glory of God and say, this is my whole life. It's everything. Jesus gets it all. Whatever's not in line with that, I want this. And you know what? He'll stop at nothing to do it. And it's better for us as followers of Christ that we get that message quickly rather than later because if it takes a long time, sometimes he uses painful circumstance to bring our situation back into the glory of God. Trying to save you some heartache here. God can use anything to change our posture. I want to ask you this. What's your burning bush? See, God had to get Moses' attention. He had to shake him up and say, you're not living for my glory. I've got a plan and I'm going to use you. God is using burning bushes in all of our lives. What's yours? How is he getting a hold of you right now? He can use any number of things. Sometimes he can use dreams and visions and powerful miracles. That's some of your stories. He does the incredible. 
Stories, time after time, circumstance that you and I as followers of Christ just say it wasn't circumstance, it wasn't luck. God orchestrated it. Sometimes he uses sickness. You know that? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, after setting up the communion meal, he says, you know, some of you shouldn't be taking this. It's, because, it's the reason some of you are sick and even some of you have died. Because there's sin in our life. We haven't set our posture towards the glory of God. He allows sickness in our life in order to change us. Do you know that's the holiness of God? Painful circumstance. New life circumstance. New jobs. New door openings. New door closings. God can use anything. What's he using in your life? What's your burning bush that he's saying, you are not living your life for the glory of God. You're too distracted. You're busy with the stuff of this world. And none of your problems are going to get fixed. And you're missing out on all I got planned for you. What's your burning bush? Does he even have your attention that you could see it? The burning bush scene's far from over. Actually, we're going all the way through chapter 4 today, and we're only halfway through the first half of Genesis, or Exodus chapter 3. What's going to happen next is that all of Moses' weaknesses are going to come out. Moses goes into crisis mode. This is what should happen when you talk honestly to God. I just want you to know that. If you're honest with yourself and you really read your Bible and you allow God to do deep-seated heart work in your life when you really read and you reflect and you allow the Word of God to penetrate your soul, we should have crises almost every day. We would fall apart if not for His grace because it's all, altogether overwhelming. Moses has a crisis. He starts throwing up all the excuses of why God's got the wrong guy. Ready for him? Let me read them to you. Genesis, or Exodus chapter 3, verse 11. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Who am I? Now, that's a respectful one. I think the first one is respectful on Moses' part, but it's still an excuse. Moses, God, I'm nobody. I'm just a shepherd in Midian. You want me to go have political discourse with the most powerful man in the world? Wrong guy. Chapter 4, verse 1, the Israelites won't believe me. That's a good excuse. You know, I think this one we're afraid of all the time. The fear of friendly fire. How many of you are afraid to... Really lift your hands and worship in this room because someone in this room is going to see you. What's that about? <laughs> Fear of friendly fire. Fear that other followers of God are going to think you're too worshipful of the God of the Bible? That makes no sense. That's his excuse. God meets him right there and says, I'll, I'll be with you. Don't worry. I'll be with you. Chapter 4, verse 10, I'm not eloquent of speech, speech, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. <laughs> I, I don't have what it takes. I don't have the skill set. I'm not trained. How am I going to do this political discourse with Pharaoh? That's something for a president of a nation. I, I can't do that kind of thing. You know what God says to that one? This is great. God says to that one, hey, Moses, I'll be with your mouth. That's what he says. I'll be with your mouth. Here's what I want you to do, Moses. You just stand there and start moving your mouth, <laughs> and I'll give you words, okay? You know why? Because it's not up to you finding the words to say, Moses. I'll tell you what to say in the moment. You just get yourself in the right spot. I'm God. You're Moses. Let me be God. Chapter 4, verse 13. Oh, Lord, please send somebody else. I love that one. You know why? Because every one of us has said it. Every one of us. God's got this incredible mission for your life to set everything about you for the glory of God. And at the end of the day, you know why we don't do it? Because we say, you got to have someone better for it, God. I'd rather just be a shepherd in Midian. You know what's amazing with each of these? 
God meets Moses right where he is. He doesn't get frustrated with Moses. At one point, he gets angry, actually. That's towards the end of chapter 4. But that's a divine anger. It's a different thing. He, he, he meets him in all these moments, and he says, I'll be with you. With each one, he gives him grace. He says, I hear you, Moses. I know you're bad at speaking publicly. Guess what? Look, I'm going to give you your brother-in-law. Your brother, Aaron, let's take him. Bring him up here. He'll be with you. So then you don't have to feel like you're alone when you're in front of Pharaoh. Is that, is that going to help you, Moses? Moses, your people won't listen to you? Here's some signs. Look, here, take this staff. It'll turn into a snake when you throw it on the ground. <laughs> that'll convince everybody. Don't worry. Don't, you, don't, you didn't even need that. I'm going to convince them without that. But, but if that's what you need, Moses, I'm going to be here for you. He never gets tired of it. He brings all these excuses to God, and every time God says, I got you, Moses. Let's go. How many excuses are you going to throw up? But underneath all of Moses' fears, all of his imperfections, all of his hesitations, lies a much deeper thing. And we see that in chapter 3, verse 13. Let me read this to you. Then Moses said to God, if I come, I didn't say this excuse earlier, so I'm saying it now. If I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? Here's a man who doesn't know God personally yet. He knows about God. He's got enough Jewish blood in him to know about God. But he doesn't know the name of God. When, I, when, when he says, what's your name? He's saying, who are you? The way I speak to my wife, the way I speak to my friends, I speak to them with names on a personal relationship level. Moses is saying, I only know a bit about you. I don't really know your name. Who are you, God? What's your name? Listen to how God responds. Verses 14 to 15. Then God said to Moses, hear it closely, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord. When you see the Lord in all cap letters in your Bible, that's the modern day translation of the name Yahweh. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, he has sent me to you. This is my name for how long, church? What does it say? This is my name forever. Forever. Yahweh is my name. God starts by saying, I am who I am. That's not his name yet. That's his ontology. That's who he is. It's his makeup. God hasn't said his name yet. He says that in just a bit, but first he starts, he says, Moses, you got so much doubt in you. Let me make sure you know who you're talking to right now. I am who I am. You know what that means, Moses? Moses, you want authority? I made the heavens and the earth and the very molecules of the ground that you're standing on. I am who I am, Moses. Moses, I'm writing history, and history unfolds exactly according to my perfect will. You know why? Because I am who I am, Moses. Moses, you are what I made you. You know why? Because I am what I am. Moses, Pharaoh will let you go not one second before and not one second after I tell him to let you go. You know why? Because I am what I am. Moses, you think the burning bush is something? You wait till you get to the Red Sea. I'll show you a miracle. You know why? Because I am what I am. Moses, I have no beginning and no end. I am what I am. And then he says this. Say this to the people of Israel. Yahweh is my name. 
Yahweh. Yahweh. It's like breathing, isn't it? Yahweh. It means I am. I am. That name is used of God in the book of Genesis, but it's not used yet in the book of Exodus. Here's what had happened. God's people had forgotten his name. They forgot his name. 400 years of slavery will do that to you, won't it? They've been under so much hardship, so much pain, that they've forgotten the personal name, that name that sounds like breathing, that name that means I am, that name, they forgot it. I imagine Moses going back to the elders, coming back to them saying, you're not going to believe this, but God has spoken to me, and I've come to let you know he's on the move, he's going to free you. And the elders looking at him saying, yeah, what's his name? And, him, and Moses saying, Yahweh. And each of them saying, I haven't heard that name in decades. We haven't even mentioned that name in decades. But Yahweh is back. When we say hallelujah, you know what we're saying? Hallelujah, praise, Yah, Yahweh. That's a short name of Yahweh. Hallelujah, Yah, praise be to Yahweh, praise be to Yahweh. We say that every week and you don't even know you're saying it. This is the name of God. This is his precious name that we can never forget. We must never forget this name. It's the name that God has. And when Jesus was on this earth and they looked at Jesus and they said to us, tell us, Jesus, who are you? You know how he responded to them? We know this story, church, because I tell you all the time. He looked at them and what did he say? He said, before Abraham was, I am. He took that name Yahweh on himself. The same God that appeared to Moses in the burning bush appeared in the form of Jesus Christ, the final fulfillment of God appearing in the flesh. And he took on our sin on the cross, God dying in our place. See, the story of God redeeming a people in slavery is not over with the people coming out of slavery in Egypt. What are the five characteristics of God? What are, what's the first one? God hears and sees our affliction. Did you know that you were afflicted? You were in slavery, just like the, Egyptian, the Israelites were in Egypt. Scripture says that we were enslaved to sin. Enslaved to sin. There's no way we could have gotten out of it on our own. The rebellion to sin had caused us our death. We were separated from God. But what does God do? Number two, God comes down. That's what he did for Moses. He came down and he delivered his people, and it's what he's done for you. He's come down in the person of Jesus Christ he bore your sin on the cross that you might have life in the full, that you might have forgiveness of sin. And then what does he do? Number three, God sends Moses. And number four, he says, I'll be with you. You know, as I close this, many of you will be burning bushes in other people's lives. What's a burning bush? Think about this for a second. A burning bush is something that's on flame, but it's not burning up. It's consumed in flames, and yet it's not burning up. You know one of the great ways that you will be a burning bush in other people's lives? When everything about your life is falling apart, and yet something about you is built on the rock that is Yahweh, and he's got you, and you're sustained in the midst of it. When you can't pay your rent, when you don't know where it's going to come from, when you're sick and you're tired and your job's too hard and you lost your job, when everyone's abandoned you, 
when no one's hearing your, tough, your toughness in life and all the problems that you have, and when you're experiencing death and sickness and Satan, and you walk in this room and you say, hallelujah, hallelujah, praise be to Yahweh because he's got me. He's the rock that I'm built on, and you're inflamed, but you're not burned up. You know what happens? Everyone looks in on your life and they say, I know what's going on in their life. What is different about them? Why are they not consumed? And you become a burning bush. People look in on your life and they get a glimpse of Yahweh in your life. Is that you? Is that you this morning? Have you, have you allowed your whole posture of your life to be aimed for the glory of Yahweh, lifting up Jesus in all of his glory, so that when other people look in on your life, that's the first thing they see? That's what the church is. That's what this is. Nothing short of that is what God wants in your life. You will be a burning bush in countless people's lives so long as God's got your attention. The end of this chapter, chapter 4 ends. Let me read to you what happens next. And the people believed. Moses goes back. He goes back. He tells the elders of Israel everything that's happened. And happens just as God said it would. The people believed. And when they heard that the Lord, that's Yahweh, and when they heard that Yahweh had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshipped. Will you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, oh, Yahweh, you are God, and we are not. We've got to confess right now that we have been using you for self-help. God, that we have been using you for something that is foreign to you, God. That is not your primary aim. You are about the glory of God, redeeming a people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and language for yourself, and you've called us into that glorious mission. And God, we want to be fixed and healed by you. We want to have our posture changed by you. God, we want to see the blessing of walking with you, knowing that you walk with us, that you will always be with us. That was your great promise to us. No, but God, we forget it. God, change us this morning. Set our posture towards your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.